Germantown Community Radio, 92.9 FM, WGGTLP, Philadelphia, and online at gtownradio.com. This is What Do You Know About That? A radio show about anything and everything happening in our community, our city, and our world. Here are your hosts, Eric Gershnow and Mary Angela Saavedra. Happy Thanksgiving. That's right. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. We are officially here. The holiday season's pretty um, exciting, I suppose. It just, I blinked and now it's here. It's, yeah, it's just, it's its a little weird. Yeah, I'm kind of not okay with it, but I'm, I'm going to get there. <laughs> I saw i saw them on Chestnut Hill Avenue putting up all the bows and the and the pretty... You know all the all the stuff up there at the top of the hill, and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, no, here we are. <laughs> I feel like it was Hall- Halloween like two seconds ago. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, now it's it's everyone's uh, time to get their shopping in. Yeah, and if you're ordering online, do it early because mail is going to be even worse than last year. They say. So. Yeah, I up. mean, what there's there's been a massive delay across. All, all kinds of industries, right? Supply chain shortages and there's not enough manpower. It's going to result in uh, uh, empty shelves. Well, it's more about I don't want what happened last year to happen again this year, which is where all those hundreds of thousands of packages were downtown, just like in a warehouse where they're like, we can't deliver them. We just don't have a way of delivering this much mail. And so then it took till I think I read February before all those packages got to people. So some people got Christmas presents, you know, in February because that's how long it took to go through hundreds of thousands of packages that were backlogged. So I was like, hopefully it won't be quite as bad, but you know, just heads up, try and give in person this year if you can, because mailing things, it's going to be tricky. Yeah, no, indeed. Uh, but I think tis the season for family gatherings. More people just generally are a little more open to doing stuff along those lines. Now that people that we know have, have gotten vaccinated. So it's like, hey, uh, I want to go do stuff. I want to spend time with the family. I want to go out. I want to have a beer. <laughs> so yeah. I think there's going to be a lot more of that this year for oh. sure. Well, I hope everyone's having a great Thanksgiving and has a wonderful weekend this weekend. So enjoy. You want to talk about what's going on in the neighborhood, Eric? Please. Uh, you know, there's been so many things that have actually been coming up on my radar that have been really interesting, but I'd like to hear what sort of things that you've been coming across. Sure. So a very uh, interesting thank you came out across my Nextdoor app the other day. And it it was really amusing because it was I felt like it was such a positive thing. And, you know, oftentimes on Nextdoor, it's a lot of complaints, right? It's always like someone saying, oh, this is so terrible in the neighborhood, or I wish this wasn't happening or whatever. It was nice to see something that was like, thank you so much, kind person who did something awesome for me. And um, the actual title of this post was thank you, stranger, with a lot of exclamation points. Um, but this is what happened. Uh, this person a couple weeks ago, uh, said that their bathroom doorknob fell off, locking them in their bathroom here oh, in the neighborhood. Snap. Yeah. So they're like here in the neighborhood, they're in their house and they're locked in their bathroom. And, you know, aside from being completely humiliated, <laughs> they were also terrified. They're like, wait, how, how am I going to get out of this bathroom I can't get out of? And after attempting to break through the door unsuccessfully and screaming 911 for four hours, because apparently they didn't have their phone in there, which, you know, oh no, sometimes you don't. Oh. <laughs> right. <laughs> they're stuck in there and they're just like shouting 911. They were left with no option but to break out a window and attempt to flag down a passing stranger for help. Oh, wow. Right. So this poor person's like stuck. It's been four hours. They've been in their bathroom screaming. No one's coming. Now they've like broken out their window and been like, hey, help, please, somebody. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's hard. Yeah. It, it's not a great story, but it has a great ending because she said two poor souls happened to be walking their dog. Noticed me hanging halfway out my second floor window, screaming like a mad woman, ran to a neighbor who tracked down my sister and my front door key. So bottom line, I was rescued by two strangers who could have ignored the situation, but didn't. Whoever you are, thank you, thank you, thank you, with lots of exclamation points. And I was like, that's so sweet, because she's absolutely right. I mean, honestly, I mean, imagine what that scenario looks like. 
you're walking and someone's screaming. I think probably because she was a woman, that is why someone helped. But I, I think if I walked by and it was a dude hanging out the window screaming, I, I'm not sure. Maybe. I mean, I mean, if I knew who they were, like, so these people clearly knew who her sister was, or maybe she shared right. with them that it doesn't really say like how they they knew to where to find her sister. But, um, you know, the fact that they helped. Good Samaritans was, in the neighborhood. Yeah, I just thought that was great. Um, but also... Maybe check your doorknobs before you Well, go. you know, it's so funny. The first thing that like popped into my head was, you know, like I don't go to the bathroom without my phone, especially in the morning, because that's like my newspaper. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's the newspaper. But, but clearly anyway. there are people who don't do that. So, you know, we're the weird ones that are going into the bathroom with our phone. Maybe I'm but. sharing too much. <laughs> but, oh, yeah. I'm sure I'm not the only one. Yeah, that was that was my feel good story. I thought that was really great. So thank you, kind strangers who helped a woman escape her bathroom uh, the other day. So then, you know, on the flip side of this coin, um, we can talk about theft near the Wissahickon trails. So apparently that is up. I mean, right now everyone's, you know, hiking in the Wissahickon because, you know, well, it all, you it had mentioned last time about the, the, the stroller. stroller. Right. This is actual cars being broken into which we witnessed. Do you remember that time we went and we parked by Valley Green and we came back out from the trails and the car next to us had had their window smashed in? Oh, yes. And the, oh, the, yeah. the people were like, wow. Um, you know, they, they, they were just like, we were, we were just in the trails and luckily, you know, our car was right next to it, but our car wasn't hit probably because they couldn't see anything. And that's really the key, right? Remember, if you're going to park your car, especially on the trails up there, I mean, it, it's prime. You know, criminals know you are not near your car. They know that you are in the woods somewhere hiking around. And if you've got something they can see, you know, they're not trying to spend a lot of time in your car. They're trying to smash and grab. So, you know, don't don't put your purse in there. Don't, you know, even in your trunk, this um, particular posting said that that there was one car um, whose car, I mean, sorry, car, whose trunk had been broken into. So that's another thing to like, you know, I I I didn't think about that. I would say, let's put my purse in the trunk. Like, that's something I would do. And now they're saying, like, just don't take that stuff to the Wissick. And Leave all your valuables at home. Right, exactly. If you're going to go hiking, just take what you need, you know, key to your car, put it there and go, and it'll be fine. So just, you know, be aware. I mean, it's unfortunate. I mean, it's it, but, you're in the park, but you're in the, in a park in, in a city. In the city, right. And that's what we always forget. I mean, it it winds around. You know, it comes around all of these neighborhoods, and it's, it seems like you're in the middle of nowhere because it gets so quiet, but you forget we're, we're cutting right through the middle of the city. So just, just be alert. And then something else I wanted to talk about, which will kind of, I guess, segue into our topic for today, mm-hmm. is there have been a lot of posts about sort of the aesthetic of the neighborhood. What I'm talking about in particular is this post that I saw recently about Verizon's epidemic of visual pollution. That's what the title of the post is. This person is calling out Verizon for um, contributing to a lot of visual pollution in Philadelphia. And this is referring to how things are wired up. Yes. And I thought that was really interesting because so it it got my attention, right? I saw the post and I was like, well, I want to read about Verizon's epidemic of visual pollution. What's this about? And this person's talking about how they look out their backyard And the chief source of visual pollution is the thousands of feet of abandoned Verizon telephone lines, most of which haven't been used for many years. And as this post goes on, they start describing, you know, all these wires and things. And so, yeah, I I went out and I took a look and lo and behold, they're not wrong. Like that ivy that's behind our house, right? It's growing along a wire, which I assumed was electrical, but it absolutely isn't. It's telephone wires. It's telephone wires that we're not using, right? We don't have a telephone. Do you do you know well, anyone so the who has a landline? Is like, then who owns it? Is it the city's property? No. It's it, Verizon's it's, property. It's Verizon, right. And they don't need it. So they just, they abandon, just abandon it, it and basically. leave it there. Right. So what the post was saying, a lot of people commented, this thing has like a hundred and fifteen comments on it. It's it's a lot. Um, but people were talking about how. Uh, at one point, they had a technician come out to do some electrical work, and they were like, hey, you know, is, are these electrical wires? Can we, like, tie them back or whatever? And the guy was like, no, 
those are abandoned telephone wires. And she said, well, what can we do about it? And he said, you can cut them down. Just cut them down. And so they cleared a bunch of them themselves. And that's really the thing if you want to clear them. But you have to be sure it's Verizon wires, right? That it, I mean, that it's telephone wires, not not like yeah, Fios. as a resident, you really shouldn't be making that call. Right. Well, and you don't want, yeah, you don't want it to be a, a Fios line, right? Because that's the fiber optic line that gives you the internet, right? Which or, also looks like a telephone line. Or it's still the property of Verizon. If you mess with that, there could be litigation against you for, for touching private property. Who Ab- knows? Absolutely. I mean. Absolutely. So there's there's a bunch of debate back and forth on here because for those very reasons, that's exactly what people are saying. They're like, no, 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 don't don't cut it down. And this other person's like, I cut it all down. I just took it out and ripped it off the back of my house. And I'm like, well, I hope somebody's Internet isn't missing now. I mean, it's very hard to tell the difference between like when I looked out our house, we have Fios, right? Mm -hmm. I looked at it and that line that comes in for the Fios looks like a telephone line to me. I know it's not. I know it's the Fios. I've seen it. But, you know, they look kind of all the same. So, yeah, Philly, don't go around hacking down. Yeah, I, I wouldn't encourage anyone who's looking to to clear uh, visual pollution associated with uh, Verizon cables to take it upon yourself. Absolutely. So <laughs> my real point is, you know, there are other things we can do. You can call and complain. You can call and just, you know, squeaky wheels and report it to 311 and help encourage the city to engage and hold Verizon accountable. It's true. There are phone lines that are never going to be used again because we just don't use landlines anymore. We really just don't. Right. And you're. it's basically they're abandoned. They're just leaving debris, trash yeah. around as if it's not being used. Right. Yeah. So repurpose it somehow. Speak up. Use your voice. Yeah. Yeah. But it's 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 a hard thing to do. It's it's very clear that there's a limitation of resources. And anytime, I mean, if anything, city is probably like putting out fires more or less. Right. There's ideally you be in like a steady hum where you're addressing issues and you're on top of things and you're proactive and you have systems in place to deal with, say, things like this. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think that's how the city of Philadelphia operates. I think it's it's a first come, first serve. Okay, you're on fire. Let me put you out right now. Okay, you're on fire. <laughs> it's, I think that's how it works. Well, I mean, luckily they're putting out the fires, so that's good news. But, yeah, just as a community, I think we can be vocal. I mean, that's all we can do right now, you know, like, so just... Yeah. And figure out, you know, how you can muster resources, I guess. I mean, that's that's the challenge. And that's that's really the expectation of the public officials. Uh, Yep. I was going to contribute something to the community voices. Like I actually been paying attention to my Germantown friends feed a lot more. And it's funny because a lot of things you were mentioning before about animals, that's something you always see about animals. Always. You're always going to find animals. (laughs) It's true. And the other thing they like to talk about, again, is aesthetic of the neighborhood. So something that's hindering a little bit of that that has come up always often is parking. Yeah. Yep. Parking Parking. sucks. Everyone knows it. Yep. And so somebody finally pointed out that they've noticed a lot more cars parking on the sidewalk than in the past. They're like, you know, parking's always been bad and we've always seen people double park or, you know, park where they shouldn't be parking, like, you know, no parking area or whatever, like ignoring no parking signs. But now people have just taken to parking on their sidewalks. And one of the big complaints about it is absolutely valid. What about people who are in wheelchairs or, you know, trying to walk on the sidewalk, like need it for accessibility and can't use the sidewalk because there's a car parked on it. So then their option is they've got to go out into the street. And that's not great. So the question was, is this legal now? Like, that's literally what this poster put. Like, you know, is is this legal now to park on the sidewalk in Philly? And it's like, well, it's never been legal. But you and I both know people park on the sidewalk all the time. Right. And it's not something that's like being actively policed and I mean maybe it's dependent on the time of the month and meeting quota but more often than not I mean in residential areas they're they're not going to bust people we got people parking on the sidewalk in our neighborhood and it's truly reflection of the fact that this neighborhood was not designed for people who have cars well also most 
households have more than one car. Exactly. Right. We, we, we don't live in a world where, you know, it's a one car household anymore. It's usually if you've got two full time working adults in the household, you have two cars. Yeah. And you're talking about neighborhoods that were built like at the turn of the 20th century. You were lucky if you had a car. Yeah. <laughs> you were using my, the trolley that went down Germantown Avenue. Then, right. Yeah. <laughs> you you were using the trolley. You weren't you weren't driving a car. Yeah. So then the question is, what do we do about that? Yeah. What do we do about that? Well, it's interesting because it, it sort of feeds into this whole discussion about development in the neighborhood, what's sanctioned, what's not, what to look out for, especially if you're someone who's looking to invest in a piece of property, which is something that you know we've had firsthand experience with, and, and I've been kind of going through that exercise again myself. So it's it's really interesting and it's worth, I think, getting a little educated about. It's not necessarily specific to Philadelphia, but there are things about Philadelphia that you just inherently have to be aware of. One of that having to do with zoning laws, and that sort of ties in with with parking, because for developers, especially who are looking to this neighborhood in particular, it's seen as an attractive neighborhood. Housing prices are going up. Uh, developers want to get in on that. And naturally, they want, for a developer, they want to rake in as much money as they can. They want to build some kind of apartment complex. Well, if you're going to do that, you have to, by law, have you have to build on-site parking. You can't get that. in, you know, And that's why a lot of these places, especially on the corner of our street, got shut down because uh, they wanted to build on that lot. They wanted to build something like a multiple unit but housing. they didn't want to build parking. No, they didn't want yeah. to build parking. Yeah. So Can't I didn't know that. that. So it's the law that if you build an apartment building, you have to have parking on site for it. I believe so. Wow. That's, I mean, that's great. It should be that way because then, yeah, otherwise. That You're going to create a really big problem. That's already a problem. So, you know? so that explains what happened on, um, what was that street? Was it Cresham? At the end of Sedgwick, when we lived over that way, um, where those two houses were going to exactly be demolished correct. and they were going to put in a apartment complex and they didn't get, there was this big fight about it. And then, yeah, now they just basically redid the two houses and they didn't demolish them. They kept them there. Exactly. So they had to essentially just rebuild the houses that were there. So they took the existing brick, the framework, which... It's more like restoration in a way because they're still using the existing components, the recycling, the, the the skeleton of the house, but they're rebuilding the the infrastructure. Sometimes they'll, uh, if if you're lucky, they'll put central air in the home, rebuild the walls, everything, so uh, make it more of a modern home. And that's those two units on the corner of Crusham and Sedgwick. That's what those became. Oh, yeah. So they look like. I mean, they fit in with the rest of the row homes, but they definitely look brand new. Sure. It's unlike the, I'd like to refer to it as the Ikea style. It's very West Coast Seattle, if you've ever been out to Seattle, but it's very boxy and geometric. A lot of the row homes that are being completely rebuilt, like on the lot, they they look industrial, Almost like these, the way they decorate the McDonald's now. It's just like 50 yeah. shades of gray. There's no actual color there. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just weird. Yeah. So I am a little confused about what the law, and you might not know the answer to this, so that's fine. But um, about what the law is involving having to like, you know, build a home that fits within the neighborhood. And the example I'll use are those two houses on Duval that that look 100% out of place. It looks like there had been almost maybe even two doubles side by side that then those lots were sold. And then they did these really thin, weird, modern looking, they're narrow, those narrow skinny houses. Do you know what ones I'm talking about? On Duval. Mm -hmm. They're right down. It's the next block. It's not our block, but it's the block between Germantown and Cherokee. And they're those two weird little houses that are like 
It's like it looks like they're built sideways. I can't even tell where oh, the door yes, is. Oh yes, yes, I know. It's like half an A-frame. Right. It's, it's weird. It's, and, and the the front porch actually faces to the side of the house. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like, I'm not even sure where the like I said where the door is. I I think it might be on the side. <laughs> like I, I don't really know. And they really do stick out like sore thumbs. Like the, it just looks wrong on the street. So then I'm like, do architects have to be like, this is what oh, I want to put I'm, here? I'm like, sure. Well, it's interesting to see some of the, if you want to call them rebuilds, but it makes you question people who are flipping properties to make money. Are they actually getting permits to do some of the work? Are they doing the work themselves? Because I imagine that trying to pull a permit is probably like just cutting through dense jungle with a machete. It's just <laughs> time consuming and exhausting. So there's actually a number of updates and this was captured, I think, in the, the Philly Inquirer. I read this article about it, but there's a, and there's a link to all these bills that were just updated this fall. So a lot of them are tied really around how contractors can operate and how they, when they come in, to purchase a property with the intention of flipping, you want to, you don't want to make it so easy for them to do that because in doing so you're facilitating contractors cutting corners and um, not really investing the, the, the necessary time and resources, energy into making that house a livable space. So one of those is uh, house bill, 1854. <laughs> uh, this is an act in establishing uniform construction code. This is more for developers who are building brand new properties. And when I read this, I, I immediately thought of my friend Taffy, who this actually happened to her just a year ago, but she paid a developer to come in and build a brand new space in the city. There was an empty lot. She had a brand new building built. She runs a daycare center, so she has kids there, and then she lives on top of the space. So she lives in the daycare center above it. She had a room for herself and her, her adult daughter, and then just within a short period of time, she started noticing essentially the house was falling apart. Oh, no. Yeah, all kinds of stuff, and not just cosmetic problems, but poor plumbing, electrical uh, the support structure, the foundation, there were issues with with that. And you're when you start talking about issues with the foundation, you're getting into some serious dollars and cents. It's expensive. And for anyone who's ever had to hire a lawyer and go to court, litigation is so taxing. It's so exhausting, yeah. emotionally exhausting. It's costly. It's something you don't ever ever want to have to do. So if you're ever making any kind of choices with regards to real estate, you need to think about that long term. Yeah. Like, is this something that I may potentially have to go to court and fight? And But sometimes you just don't know. So you really have to pay attention to who you're working with, who you choose to place your trust in. You want to make sure that they've been like vetted. And ideally, you find someone, a contractor who's registered uh, so was this contractor like not registered? Yeah, I have not? no idea, but yeah. he definitely fed her a story. Uh, and and because it was someone she knew personally, she mm -hmm. trusted him. Yeah. And it, it, it came back to bite her. Uh, but then some of these other um, house bills, again, that were just updated this fall. Um, so one of them, House Bill 1855, this is around home improvements um, for contractors, again, who are looking to flip houses. The owners are required to maintain possession of the residents for a year. Again, it's it's to get them to uh, invest in the property, essentially, because now they're tied to it for a year. They right. can't just come in there, swoop in, do a quick fix them up, and then put it on the market, lick yeah. and split. That's smart. I mean, that that sounds reasonable and great. I mean, I think I think that'll help. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, it's about trying to protect um, consumers. Um, mm -hmm. The other one that I would mention, uh, there's a, a bill that addresses, and this is, I think, important because the article I was reading was highlighting this: is neighbors who are adjacent to homes that are being redone. So, say you're part of a row home, someone bought contractor 
buys up the unit next to you and decides to go in there and not pull the permits and do their own work and they do a half-assed job, but maybe they they bring a jackhammer in and they crack the shared wall or the foundation mm-hmm. that's connected to your home. Or uh, in the article, it cited someone who I think they had ruptured the gas line feeding uh. into the home and the neighbor could smell the gas. I mean, that would scare the crap out of me. Yeah. And, you know, so, so again, Philly's trying to bake some legislation in to, to protect homeowners, consumers, and existing homeowners, I think is really important because, you know, depending on what part of the neighborhood you're in, you know, and the condition of your home, you may be part of a, a row home that some of those units have kind of, you know, fallen apart over the years. It's, it's devalued the property. But then you got to watch out for these developers that swoop in. Thankfully, there are people, homeowners that that come in and breathe their blood, sweat, and tears into rebuilding these homes. Yeah. And God bless them. I mean, I know a, a number of folks. Actually, Jacopo, mm-hmm. that house he bought, he, I mean, he put a stage on the back of it, and he's been slowly remodeling that house, posting about it all the time. I love that. But well, for- that seems to be what's happening around here. You know, there's that the house here on the end um, of a row and it's been empty for a while, but people have been slowly like I've seen them like gutting it out and like just kind of taking their time. And, you know, every week there's a new collection of garbage and stuff they've pulled out and looks like they're Mm -hmm. I saw a door go in the other day. So, well, so, you know, those laws all all seem great in the protecting, you know, angle. But I'm, I'm really curious about, again, if there's anything in place to stop developers from, you know, doing like what I just mentioned before about the houses being kind of weird and not. Oh, zoning for like the, the look. Well, I would think there's got to be certain like, I mean, basic requirements structurally for the house. Uh, and I think there's a, a, a height limit, perhaps not that that stopped anyone from putting uh you know, rooftop deck on their third floor home. <laughs> but no, I mean, I guess you can make your house as bizarro and wackadoo as you want to. Well, I mean, that's the advantage of living in a city and not in a suburban neighborhood with a homeowners association. So, I mean, I'm not saying nobody should have any creative freedom over their house or how, you know, a house wants to be built. It's just that, you know, there are some some decent still standing homes that could definitely use renovation, but don't necessarily need to be demolished and start over. Like, I just feel like that, that is what loses the attractiveness. Like those two houses I'm referring to seem so out of place because they seem like little matchbox houses that don't fit with this beautiful stone homes that we're seeing all around in the rest of the neighborhood. And then suddenly there are these two houses that I feel like I could, you know, well, yeah, light I mean, a it, match on. It and, could, it and could impact up. the value of the surrounding property for sure. Mm. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Well, if anyone out there has any thoughts on it, uh, please feel free to share it with us. Yes, definitely. You can message us on Facebook or Instagram at what do you know about that? All one word on both of those, or you can email us at what do you know? G town at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. We would love to um, get your thoughts. Awesome. We're going to take a really short break. And when we come back, we're going to finish this whole discussion about homeownership, contractors, and property. And then we're going to be joined by our guest musician for this week. So uh, please stay tuned. You're listening to 92.9 FM G-Town Radio. Hey, everybody. Uh, thanks again for listening. This, again, is uh, What Do You Know About That? I'm your host, Eric Gershnow, along with the lovely Mary Angela Saavedra. Hello. And uh, we've been kind of talking about property and, and uh, rights and construction, contractors, housing improvements. And, you know, how does that what does that mean for residents and uh, prospective home buyers, homeowners? And uh, it's been kind of interesting because I, I've been kind of going through this process of looking to buy a home. And this home is really intended to be like an investment property, 
not that I'm trying to lease it. I'm 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 actually looking to have a, a separate space to potentially expand into either for work, studio, what have you, uh, temporary home for the kid. <laughs> uh, but in you know doing doing so, you know the the home I'm looking at was a is an older home that's just been recently renovated. We just had the inspection done. There's 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 some things that have come up. It's just going through the experience, I'm not going to get into my specific experience. We'd love to hear any folks' experience who's, who's bought a home in the city of Philadelphia, particularly in the Germantown neighborhood. But every time you buy a home, it's a completely unique experience. It's, it's a bit of a roller coaster ride because you got to show up to the table kind of prepared to, to invest some funds into it, right? So part of that is, I mean, funds and time. So you have to gather your financial information together. You have to show proof that, hey, I can take on a loan. You have to be able to get qualified. And for how much can you get qualified for? And then being able to spot a property that fits your needs is livable and is within the range you can get qualified for. And just that in itself is really hard. Well, yeah, it's one of the reasons why, you know, a lot of people don't buy homes. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's why people, I mean, there's more renters, you know, than homeowners, truly. I mean, I feel like, especially in Philadelphia, um, because of that very thing, it's really very tricky and it's a taxing process. And I didn't realize it. I mean, I'm, you know, first time homeowner myself. And I was like, wow, I had no idea this process was so cumbersome. Oh, yeah. And I mean, bank is like lending money is no joke. So for folks who are really serious about owning a home, you really have to plan way in advance, especially if you have some challenging credit history or debt tied to to your name that you got to wrap up in order to to purchase a home. Because you know, real estate's it's a it can be a, a wonderful investment. It, it can last you a lifetime, obviously, and potentially your kid's lifetime. But you want to make sure that you're investing in the right property, and part of the process of doing that. After you've been able to establish your your financials, you know, through bank statements, all that kind of stuff, you need to have a home inspection. You can't skip yeah, never, the home inspection. Never skip the home inspection. Home inspection is expensive. It's money that you don't get back. You have to expect to just drop a lot of money on home inspection, regardless of you whether you buy the home or not. But you cannot skip it. It's such an essential piece to buying a home because is during the home inspection that these guys will uncover what's actually wrong with the house. So especially for these older homes, there's you have to pay attention to things like structural integrity, mm. especially for the lot of the, the, the houses that have a stone foundation. Uh, you have to make sure that that mortar that sits in between those stones, how old is it? Has it been recently repointed, redone meaning? Uh, because that obviously impacts whether water seeps into the basement. You want to keep water out. Um, you want to make sure that the electrical is up to code, that knob and tube wiring stuff's got to go. Yeah. That's bad news. Yeah. But a lot of these older homes still have that. So I think playing it smart and finding a home that's been recently, say, renovated or refurbished is not a bad way to go. But you need to check and make sure that these guys have gone through the appropriate channels to get the work done. Did they apply for a permit through the city to right. address this? If not, you know, then that's a red flag, red flag, yeah, red flag, <laughs> or just something to pay attention to again, an inspector or a qualified say electrician or plumber who knows what things should look like and how things should function. They can come in and, and assess but you also have to consider the timing to close because usually close is like 30 days from the time you put that bid in to the time that you actually go to closing. So within that 30 days, again, you got to gather all your financials together. You got a ton of paperwork you got to sign off on. But uh, consider that you're, it's, it's like, it's a, it's a huge commitment. You're marrying yourself to that debt. That's a lot of debt. Uh, even a hundred grand, that's a lot of debt. So you want to make sure that you're taking on something you can manage. And ideally you step into something that has already been sort of taken care of or set up for someone to move into and the price is right. 
and the sale goes through smoothly. But more often than not, it doesn't. Yeah. You just got to be prepared for that and the emotional stress that that goes along with all that mess because trust me it you know it's it's taxing but i think in the long run it pays off that's one of those kind of stresses that pays off well yeah i mean you know you're paying rent if you pay rent you don't own anything but a lot of people will say well i pay rent and i don't have to fix anything either but then that's how you get into these situations where you have a landlord who's like i'm not gonna fix that that's like a whole other conversation right right? i mean it is right (laughs) so i'm just saying maybe don't let this conversation talk you out of trying to buy a home (laughs) if you really want to but also understand that all the reasons you just mentioned are reasons why lots of people i know are like i'm not buying a house that's crazy you know like i get it yeah, but you know, I, I, I think if you want to play it smart and just kind of keep your ear to the ground, a good way to start would be find yourself a decent realtor, someone that you know. It could be someone personal, obviously someone who's not going to sell you something that's junk. But a realtor, their job, like an attorney, almost their job is to look out for your best interests. So you want to find a good realtor, and then ask them to set up a drip for you. What is that? A drip is basically uh, a portal where you set the limit for how much you feel you can afford and they just start dumping in houses listings that come to market that fit that description so it's like again i take my iphone with me to the bathroom in the morning (laughs) what do i do i I open up the drip and i just kind of flip through and just it's 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 like you know window shopping (laughs) sure sure well i mean you know Worst ways to start your day. <laughs> no doubt. But I, I highly encourage people who live in this neighborhood, who are renting, who who want to make the move. Um, there I, are some beautiful, beautiful houses oh yeah. that, that people are taking the time to renovate properly and nicely. And even the weird sideways houses, I'm sure those are lovely on the inside. <laughs> I just wish they looked different on the outside. <laughs> that's all. I don't like them. But, oh. you know, that's that's my cup of tea. You know, they might be they, they might be suitable. Somebody else might really like the way they look. So <laughs> don't 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 judge based on my opinion. <laughs> it's time now for who are the musicians in your neighborhood? And today we are so excited to be joined by Isaac Stanford. Hello. Hello. Welcome. Wonderful to be here. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, how about you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? All right. Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me here. This is awesome to be in the studio here. Um, so I assume you guys brought me in here to talk about musical things. We did yeah. indeed. And just to maybe give an introduction to the listeners out there, I know you are involved in probably a number of projects, but most notably slowy in the boats if anyone has ever stepped foot outside their front door in the mount airy germantown neighborhood and actually gone to any venue that hosts live music chances are you probably encountered isaac yeah i'm out there well i was i feel like i haven't been out in clubs for a long time but um yeah slowy in the boats is a uh, little five-piece band I put together back in 2013, I think was when we started out. And we started um, just getting together in my friend David's. Uh, he he was living in West Philly at the time. And we were just like getting together and playing some steel guitar tunes and hanging out. Um, Mike Lackey on bass. Um, and we had a couple different folks at first. Freddie wasn't in the band. Freddie Berman is who I'm alluding to, your friend and mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and Freddie Berman came along a little bit later. We had uh, Nate Skiles in the band for a long spell. And uh, right now we got your neighbor Brennan Ernst on guitar, so another musician of Germantown. Um, but yeah, we play all kinds of old steel guitar instrumentals and um, sometimes have some singers, uh, the great Shannon McGill. And uh, more recently we've had Steve Stanislaw singing some stuff on some stuff we recorded more recently. Yeah. But I think what's really unique and interesting about the project, well, the number one, the flavor of music you're playing is not what you would typically find in a club or any place hosting music in Philadelphia. It's instrumental primarily, but number two, you are playing a very unique instrument that most people 
aren't playing in Philadelphia. Can you tell us a little <laughs> bit about that? Yeah, man, that's the secret to my success is pick something that nobody else is playing. Um, so yeah, it's the steel guitar. And um, that was kind of the whole uh, impetus for starting the band was like I, and actually learning the instrument was I heard uh, some Jerry Bird songs, a great steel guitar player. And um, I was just like, man, this is so cool. It's such an amazing repertoire of tunes. Like there's like a whole songbook of steel guitar tunes, steel guitar music. And um, there's, you know, uh, songs that were written by steel players for steel. And they're very idiomatic in terms of the tunings that the players use. But then, you know, steel is just such a versatile instrument that it can kind of play anything and it just holds a melody. And uh, so, yeah, man, I just was like, nobody's playing this stuff. And I need to learn how to play steel guitar and then learn all these songs just to see if I can put a band together that actually performs these tunes live. Cause I had never seen a band do stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Now, just for our listeners uh, sake, can you tell us a little bit about what the steel, when you say steel guitar, what does that look like? What sort of music or styles does it lend itself to? Yeah, no, that's a good point because when I say steel guitar, a lot of people say like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know steel guitar. Like, um, you know, Trinidad steel drum music, um, or they, they think of all kinds of things um, when you say steel guitar. Um, but it refers to just basically a guitar that you're playing horizontally um, with a slide. So you're fretting the, the guitar with a slide and then playing with finger picks. And it, uh, it originally was a Hawaiian innovation on the guitar. And then it became... Uh, it became popular in all genres of music. You know, Hawaiian music came to the U.S. Uh, mainland in the early 1900s and just kind of blew up with this uh, touring Hawaiian music reviews. And um, and then it filtered into country music. It filtered into blues music and all, you know, all types of genres. And it just, you know, people play jazz on it. It's just it's such a versatile instrument that um, it can fit into anything. And so I play bluegrass. I play the dobro, which is like an acoustic version of the steel guitar. And um, it's got a big resonator cone in it. And then I play pedal steel, where there's actual pedals and knee levers adjusting string tension. And, um, you know, that's a more recent innovation, probably from the 1950s is when that started. But with slowing in the boats and a lot of what I play is just a it's a lap steel or a console steel guitar, basically strings stretched across uh, an electric guitar pickup. So it's very simple in its uh, creation in a way, but it is like extremely um, demanding technically because it just um, demands that you spend so much time. You know, any instrument does, but. To be able to make music on that, there's something about it that the simplicity is very much at odds with its technical demands. No, it's super cool. And you know, it's interesting, like I think about maybe in the world of musicians, artists, you know, there's guitar icons. The only person I can think of like pedal steel that would be iconic would be like Robert Randolph. Yeah, Robert Randolph is probably one of the most visible players out there today. Um, but, he, and he comes from a whole, you, you know, the other amazing thing about the steel is, you know, it started with Hawaii, but then like I was saying with country music and all these other genres, there's a whole genre that Robert Randolph comes out of the sacred steel genre where it was adopted by, you know, African-American churches and it became a praise instrument. And Robert wow. Randolph comes out of that church tradition of steel. Um, you know, iconic pedal steel players, if you've listened to any music recorded out of Nashville, uh, you know, or anywhere in the last 50 years, you've heard Buddy Emmons. Um, and nowadays, you know, guys like Greg Lease, um, he plays on stuff you, you know, you just hear pedal steel on Ray LaMontagne albums mm -hmm. or on... Um, Oh man, his, you know, Alison Krauss, uh, Robert Plant stuff. He's he's just played with everybody, an amazing discography. And so it it does filter into different traditions and um there are guys out there doing it. But it's it's a uh, usually like off on the stage in the shadows and you know, it's buried in the mix on the recordings, but it's there. Well, yeah, and it's kind of hard to say move around on stage with a, a lap steel. Yeah, it's pretty static. Um <laughs> And it's a lap steel, you know, it's called lap steel because you sit and it just like sits on your lap. 
Um, so more recently, I actually, to kind of get more, uh, more movement or be able to, I, I have actually started playing it on a stand standing up. So, you know, even with the lap steel, I got an old stand that was probably made in the 1940s and, um, just set it on that thing and I can, uh, play standing up with a volume pedal. What would you say is your favorite thing about being a musician in Philadelphia? I like asking this question. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, that's a good question. Um, Philly and being a musician in Philly is like, it's the best because, um, it has afforded me just like an incredible amount of different and varied opportunities to be in different settings that like, I don't know, you know, it, it's just like, for me, it's the perfect mix of, um, being able to push myself and try to improve musically because I'm just good enough to get gigs that are like maybe way out of my league for some reason in Philly or to get gigs that are just put me in, in weird context, you know, like, I have uh, played steel guitar with Ballet X, which is a contemporary ballet company. And mm. we just toured this show this past summer that had originated in 2014, 2015. And, you know, to be able to play steel guitar with a ballet, like where else are you going to do that? Except <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Exactly. Right? Um, and, and just like, there's a little club scene and the other musicians in Philly. It's such a nice community. You know, we, I had a, like a monthly residency in Maniunk at this club, Dawson Street Pub, that was just like a hub of great musical vibes. You know, people would come through there and um, it seemed like every musician in Philly, not everyone, and, you know, there's a bunch of But it tracked a lot. That was that was the, yeah. the, the regular go-to for me. Yeah. And, um, you know, when things shut down, that was hard. Uh, and I think what they're just starting to gear up this month coming up is their first show. I'm I've been hearing that that it's coming back. So yep. Yep. yeah, yeah. Freddie texted it. me and said, "You got to get in touch with Dave Wilby. It's coming back." Yeah, yeah. So hopefully, yeah, we were on a run there seven or eight years, and uh, once a month for a long time. Yeah, well, and the stuff that you guys are doing, the the intimacy of that space, you just you're just washed with with the music. I mean, it's just it's pretty incredible to be in the audience, you know, watching. So. Yeah, I've and you know I've been an audience member there a lot because I I go through there when there's you know it like I said it's just such a communal thing or was and hopefully will return as such but um, yeah you just catch some great music there on off nights random you know mm -hmm. Thursday night there's a great band exactly yeah uh, so okay why don't you tell us a little bit maybe switch gears a little bit. Uh, alter ego here okay so you gig in you're playing music what are you doing during the daytime because i know you have a profession that ties in with the music piece but yeah i you know i've been a middle school teacher now for 16 years um in cheltenham school district and so it's right across the city line from where we are in mount airy germantown across cheltenham avenue and uh, Cheltenham School District is great. It's, you know, I was before um, becoming a teacher and restarting my musical ambitions, I had studied politics and, and studied history in college and then worked in politics briefly. And I went back to get a teaching certificate, you know, thinking working with kids would be a great way to spend time and a meaningful profession. And, um, it has been, man, you know, um, teaching seventh graders is not easy and I teach social studies. Um, but it does, you know, social studies, most people assume I'm a music teacher since, um, if they know me through the music scene, but, um, social studies has been my, my gig there. And it's, it's great because social studies connects to everything, you know, and just like my, um, I was talking about this recently with somebody else about how, you know, you're saying in Philadelphia, what's great about it musically is I can connect to all these different scenes, whether it's bluegrass or ballet or, you know, jazz, whatever, you know, there's just great singer songwriter, but in social studies, you know, it, that's the subject that connects all the other ones, you know? So I tell my, we listen to a lot of music in my classes and I use music a lot. Um, I have a little MIDI trigger, uh, keypad that I have a little sound effects on. And, um, so music and sound is a big part of my classroom, experience. And I try to, I've been able to bring in 
some different voices into the classroom through my connections to the you know theater world and the the music world. Well, uh, we're gonna hear a song. Yeah. What selection do you have for us? Well, we we actually released a couple things um, this past summer, and so we had our two song EP, um, Wave and Ebb Tide. And I think... Um, Sensing a theme here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, hey, it's all thematic, right? Um, we're slowing in the boats after all. Um, but yeah, I think the B-side of that uh, 45, which is you can actually get a 45 RPM vinyl record if you're so inclined for that type of thing from High Tide Recordings. Um, but the B-side of that is this great uh, Robert Maxwell tune called Ebb Tide. And it's a nice mellow tune and... Uh, yeah, hopefully people dig it. Okay, so slowing the boats, ebb tide. Ebb tide, yeah, All right. man. It's got a very, I uh, like it. very like smooth R and B, like old school kind of R and B yeah, feel. Man. And to hear the lap steel on top of that, is... yeah, it's um, it's a great melody. You know, it's it, it's been covered by just countless artists. Sinatra did it. Um, it's been it, there are some versions of it, but it was it's kind of a tune for me. You know, that was below the radar. I you know. It wasn't a standard tune in my head until I heard um, it was a ukulele player, Otto San, 
that uh, his version of it, and I was like, man, that kind of just like took me back, and just and and the song is like written to kind of mimic the the ebb and flow of the tides, you know, yeah. it's like the, if you hear it build towards this bridge and then it kind of, you know, it just has this great dynamic thing just built into the melody and the, the song well, structure. Well, the three, four, man, you just, you can't beat the oh, three, man, four. It's sweet. It's sweet. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's how you get people to get up and slow dance. Mm-hmm. No doubt. <laughs> so I have to ask, slowing the boats, how did you come up with the name? Man, the slowing in the boat's name has prompted more uh, confusion in people. They, they, you know, it's it's funny hearing and seeing people's reaction to it because they're at first they're like, "Is this a joke or something?" I don't know. And it kind of is. You know, it kind of started as a joke that then just kind of took on, uh, you know, got legs and stuck with us. But um, we are, <laughs> you know, we were learning all these like uh, Hawaiian theme tunes. Um, and we were learning all these tunes by this great steel player, Speedy West. And, you know, if you never heard Speedy West, we do a bunch of his tunes. Um, he was a legendary steel player and just such an amazing, uh, virtuoso player. He played with Jimmy Bryan and had all these great, like guitar steel duo, uh, records and songs they recorded. But, um, when we were starting out the band, you know, we didn't have a name and, and, um, uh, my friend Tim Sonnefeld it was playing guitar with us at the time, and he just started teasing me and calling me Slowy, you know, in comparison to Speedy. <laughs> and uh, it. it was just like such a stupid nickname, like Slowy. It's not even like a thing, but um, you know, Speedy makes sense, but Slowy makes no sense to call somebody Slowy because it's not really a word. But then you made it. A but thing. then we made it a thing, and then you know, it's kind of a combination of that and one of our uh, signature tunes that we do, which is Slow Boat to China. Um, but it's funny because that, that name has just kind of, we've, I don't know if we've grown into it or what, because, you know, it was one of these things at first, it was like, we can't possibly call ourselves slowing the boats. That's just ridiculous. But then after time, people are like, man, I, you know, I love the name. And it's it, perfect. And yeah. it, it fits our vibe. Um, all these nautical themes that we've worked into our artwork. And, um, in fact, like a couple of years ago, this woman from, Paris or outside of Paris got in touch with me and her name was Slowy, her last name. And she's, her, she's Julie Slowy and she's, uh, lives in France. And she was like, this is, you know, what, what's the deal with your band name? We're Slowies. And I'm, she bought like 15 t-shirts for everybody in her family. That's awesome. <laughs> That's fantastic. So you never know what a band name is going to, you know, what the tie is going to bring yeah. in, so to speak. Ha yeah. Boom. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing the whole theme you've built around it. And then you have like when you guys perform, you have this little sign that's got like bamboo edging on it. And that the signage is important. I, I realized. Yeah, you know, it's like what makes a band? And, you know, we've got uh the they're great players in the band. We've got a bunch of tunes. Um, but there's something about a light up sign. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, seals the deal. And, and you know, I kind of came upon it by accident, but I I was home one winter break uh, just in my house by myself. And I was like, I might go crazy here. You know, I don't know if you ever spent uh, a winter break by yourself, but you got to have a project to work on. And I was like, I'm going to make a light up sign. And so I've made a couple versions because I have a, a bigger version that goes on my, I have a double 10, two uh, different tunings, two 10 string tunings. And then I have another instrument that's a single uh, uh, neck eight string. And so I made a little smaller version of the sign. So I got a little portable. When we when we went down to Florida to play at this Tiki Fest down there, I had to have like a travel rig, you know? <laughs> I was like stressed. And I was like, we can't just go down to this Tiki Fest and not have our but, sign. Yeah, no, the sign. So important. I had to build a, a travel rig. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> that's great. That's so awesome. Hey, Isaac, thank you so much for stopping by and yes, chatting thank with us you. today. Absolutely. This was great yeah, this to is have wonderful. You. So again, please remind us what gigs you got coming up so folks in the neighborhood who are listening know when to catch you and yeah, where to catch well, you. Well, keep your uh, ear to the ground as far as music coming back to Dawson Street Pub because hopefully that will be imminent. And uh, hopefully we can regain our uh, monthly, our title there as longest running monthly band in the history of Dawson Street Pub. So that will be coming back soon. And then we got these Christmas shows in Asbury Park. December 5th, we're playing in the lobby of the Asbury Hotel. And then that's going to be, I think, like 4 to 7 p.m. And then we'll be back in Asbury Park just like five days later, December 10th 
for our actual, you know, we do a Christmas party. Usually we try to do one every year. And this is uh, hosted by our label, High Tide Recordings at Langusta Lounge, right on the boardwalk, December 10th. Nice. Very cool. Well, thank you. Thank you again for being with us. This is great. Thanks for having me. And I'll see you in the neighborhood. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening. I hope you're having a wonderful Thanksgiving and be sure to tune in. We'll be back December 9th, four o'clock right here on G-Town Radio. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at What Do You Know About That or email us at whatdoyouknowgtown at gmail.com. Happy Thanksgiving, Eric. Happy Thanksgiving, Mary Angela. (laughs) 